Welcome to the Raising Joyful and Resilient Black Children podcast, where we bridge conversations from parenting to child well-being and social justice. We also provide resources and tools for parents connected to research that matters to us and to our community. I'm Dr. Valerie Adams-Bass. My co-host, Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes, is traveling today, but we have a special guest from our Parent Joy Circle, Dr. Yawande Oladende. So let's get started. In today's episode, we are joined by Michelle Browder, a remarkable guest and artist, I must say, with a unique journey. Michelle Browder, a native of Denver, Colorado, experienced racial bias and bullying at an early age when her family moved to rural Verbena, Alabama. In response, she used her artistic talents to overcome these challenges, launching a hand-painted t-shirt business at the age of 13. She continued her journey by studying graphic design and visual communications at the Art Institute of Atlanta. For nearly 35 years, Michelle has used art, history, and real talk conversations to mentor marginalized and disfavored students through visual arts and spoken word. She has even created and branded art diversion programs used by juvenile detention centers in Atlanta, Georgia, and Montgomery, Alabama. Michelle's artwork has been showcased in galleries nationwide, including the Rosa Parks Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. She has painted for notable figures such as Tyler Perry and Denzel Washington. Michelle's contributions extend to her gallery and restaurant, PJR's Fish and BBQ Restaurant. Let's get that barbecue, people which employed high school students, returning citizens, and the homeless. Michelle has traveled across the country speaking and motivating our children to be more than a statistic, generalization, or a stereotype. She challenges all children and students to defy the eyes of victimization. Today, Michelle is the founder and director of I Am More Than, youth empowerment initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. She owns and operates More Than Tours, a social business providing educational tours for nearly 10,000 underserved students and marginalized communities of color. Michelle's mission is simple. Exposing our children to the truth will give them access to a seat at the table. Let's welcome Michelle. And I must say that I have been to her site, her artistic site in Alabama, and it is fabulous. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to see you again. Good to see you. So as we dig into the conversation this evening, I'll start out by saying, you know, that was a large introduction. You've done so much and your life is so full and your commitment to young people is so full. Tell us how you find joy and resilience in your art and activism work, particularly when you are comp- when you are tackling these complex topics such as mistreatment of Black women and gynecological experience, experiments, which is how I met you, right? So let's talk a little bit of how you do the joy and resilience when you're showcasing such beautiful artistic talent, but really tackling these, these challenging issues, particularly as they relate to the lives and experiences of Black women and Black people and Black children. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And when people say, you know, how do you find joy? That was hence the red glasses. There was a woman by the name of, um, oh God, I can never even remember her name, but she would always say, Roberta Franklin, she would always say to me, Michelle, you you always look at life through rose-colored glasses because I refuse to allow the trauma um, to keep me in a state of anguish. You know, you can walk through life dealing with the traumas of our history, um, and I just refuse to allow it to rule me in that capacity. So I always try to find some kind of joy or or not even the red lining, but, you know, as Black people, we're resilient in that, the joy 
and and the fact that we're able to love, laugh, and and uh, sing, you know, sing our way through the blues and create all of these avenues for us to to thrive. And so I find my joy in creating art that disrupts. I find my joy in having conversations that changes the narrative on how people see this history and how we engage with one another um, in order to cross over into a, a new era of awakening Absolutely. or reckoning. Yeah, true indeed. True that's indeed. My so joy. You, can, yeah. you can create this art that's both beautiful, but encouraging or instigating conversation. Um, so I, I love it. That's wonderful. We're hoping to hear more mm-hmm. about your art in a little bit. But also tell us how your organization, More Than Tours, first of all, tell us what More Than Tours, how you came up with that name. Then tell us how you use More Than Tours to both empower and educate youth through both arts and history. So how did you come up with the name? And then tell us how you use it to both empower and educate, particularly mm-hmm. young people who we all need the history, all need to feel empowered, but our young people especially. Yeah, well, speaking of young people, I came up with the name. In 2012, I wanted to organize a trip to the United States Supreme Court with my students. I had been mentoring for about 10 years in in Montgomery, Alabama. And you all, now listen, don't judge me, but my ovaries were like, Michelle, we would like to be married. We would like to have some kids. And Montgomery has very slim, slim, slim pickings. And I was like ready to leave here. So after my tenure of doing about 10 years or my ninth year, and working with an organization here that, you know, would help the marginalized and working poor and formerly incarcerated. I was ready to leave here, but I wanted my students. I wanted to give them a send off. And so I organized this last trip to the United States Supreme Court to watch Brian Stevenson argue Evan Miller v. Alabama. I took 56 black and brown students uh, to the Supreme Court uh, to watch that case. And instantly those children were renewed. Their mind had changed and literally like within within an instant, they saw something different. And upon, you know, driving back from uh, DC, one by one, my students started standing up and they were just transformed. They were like, Ms. Browder, you cannot expose us to something like this and then leave us. They actually watched or they witnessed uh, Justice Scalia and Roberts, and they were arguing the case almost. It looked as if they were arguing the case for Brian Stevens, and he was so brilliant. And they were just enamored in the fact that this Black man was able to stand there and demand the presence of these nine justices. And they were like, you can't expose us to this. These kids had never been outside of Montgomery, Alabama or Georgia. And they said, you can't expose us to this, Ms. Browder, and then leave us. What are we supposed to do? And I was like, figure it out. And they were like, no, you know, you need to stay and and help us. And one student stood up and said, teach us how to moor up, Ms. Browder. Teach us how to moor up. And I said, well, what does that mean? She's like, I'm third generation housing projects. I don't want to be here. I don't want to raise my children in the same capacity that my mother and my grandmother raised us in government housing. So can you teach me how to be an entrepreneur? And so these were the questions and some of the statements that those kids were making after witnessing a Supreme Court. Only took five minutes for us to, to go in. You know, they will, unless you have tickets, you can only sit there for about five minutes. And so to, to see that, and so I said, you know what, I'll stay until my last student graduates. She was 10 years old at the time. She is now working with us. She's my lead docent at the Morup campus. So, you know, and so what yeah, was the second part of your amazing. question? So that's how that <laughs> well, all It sounds came like about. you answered both questions. I said, well, how did you come up with yeah. a name and how do you empower young people, right? How do you empower mm-hmm. and educate? And it sounds like you just answered it all with that response. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks yeah. so much. 
But the name, I, I have mm-hmm. to give credit where credit is due. I was, um, but Brian Stevenson always says we are all more than the worst thing that we have ever done. And I just discovered this guy, this brilliant attorney, um, because we're in the same city. But then also the, the love that they have and the, the support that mm-hmm. they give to incarcerated people is what drew me because my family, um, my father is the first black okay. prison chaplain that was appointed by George Wallace. So there was a kindred uh, spirit there. And so I wanted my students to see this guy. I wanted them to see him argue a case before mm. the Supreme Court. And so that's how it all came about. And so when the kid said, you know, teach me how to more up, I said, well, more takes money. You know, we, I'm not a grant writer. I'm a creative and I'm an entrepreneur. And so as I was driving around the city, looking at the iconography and just some of the statues here that still reference, you know, these warlords and oppressors and, mm. you know, treasonous characters. Right. And I was like, you know, I said, why don't we start a tour company? So I started teaching my student, uh, my students, um, the history. And mm-hmm. I started that sounds wonderful. More so more tours. up and more than tours. So you get a two for one and they get to both educate and empower, then empower others with the knowledge of the black experience. And just reminding our listeners that you are currently in Alabama, right? Montgomery, Alabama, not in Atlanta, but in Montgomery, Alabama. And that's where the more up campus is as well. Absolutely. Great, 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 mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. We're just excited. And I, you know, I just remember, you know, you're saying, you know, your ovaries were talking to you. One of the areas of study that, you know, my colleague and I look at and others do as well in academia to give credit. We've been looking at what we call other mothering, right? Which is, which is normal. We call it kinship and kin folks um, and kinship care. But, you know, one thing that we talk about is the other mothering that many black women do, whether we have had biological children or we are caring for or teaching and educating others. So, you know, it sounds like you have, you know, but you bound, you're, you're bound by your creative passion and your, your other mothering these young people who are working with you and then extending their experience with you to other young people. So that is amazing. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Michelle. That was, that was great. And, you know, I just love, love, love what you're doing, especially with youth empowerment. And I just, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about how, the exposure that you're giving these kids, right? For them to see the universe of what's possible, like leaving their the, the comfort zone to see, okay, I can be this, I can be this, you know, represent, we always say representation matters. So I just want to give you kudos, right? For all the great work you're doing. You. And it really does take a village. You know, it just takes somebody believing in, in a young person for them to know that I can be all that I can be and I can do all that I can yeah. do. So thank you so much yeah. for that. Um, quick question about the, um, your sculpture, the mothers of gynecology. So this is a powerful mm-hmm. tribute to women whose bodies were used without consent in medical experiments. Um, how can this and other monuments impact society? Because when I think in general about the history of medical research and gynecology to be specific, um, you know, most of the, the things we enjoy today, the benefits that we enjoy today was as a result of experimentation of enslaved black women without any kind of anesthetic. So you being able to have the sculpture is really um, a powerful tribute to, to those women. So how can this and other monuments really impact society today? Mm, that's a very good question because this monument uh, to these girls, they were 17, 16, as young as nine, 
um, 18 year old girls sexually trafficked. Um, I think that what we can do, and, and I'm, I'm a little critical. Can I just, I'm a little petty. Is that okay? Oh, I'm petty because I believe that if you're going to, especially if it's a, a, a person of color that's erecting monuments, I think that these monuments should speak from the then to the now. How does it apply today? And since we're in this critical time in our history where people do not want us to have access to the truth in reading books and they're banning books, then can we not use art that has been used as propaganda from the beginning of um, the enslavement here? you know, in, in the United States or in the Americas, uh, can we not use those monuments to speak truth to power to where we are today? And so I just think with monuments, you know, we're seeing them all over. We just recently had the one in, in Boston, which I'm a little critical of because, you know, uh, erasure is real with, with especially when you're, you're talking about black folk or trying to uh, depict the honor and or in order to honor black people. And so basically I just feel that if we're going to erect these monuments again, that it should be thought provoking, that people should have a reckoning with it and that it should be a theme of uh, liberation. And, you know, and unfortunately the iconography that we have throughout the United States and particularly the South is that of oppression you know, and so, yeah, that's that's where I am with the monuments today. So that's what I try to do with this particular monument is to change the narrative of Black women, uh, those stereotypes and statistics that have been placed upon us um, from colonizers and from, from enslavers and just, um, you know, those that have rule. Uh, and so basically that I, that I feel that that was my mission was to change the narrative of Black women in this country and the contribution, the forced contributions that were placed upon our bodies. Yeah, I love that. I, I really love about, you know, changing that narrative, the negative narrative. I'm really coming from that position of empowerment. And for me, mm -hmm. that, that in itself is um, very powerful. And the fact that you're using art to do this, it's just, it's just, it's just awesome. And, you know, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm not trying to get political or anything, um, but I'm just mm -hmm. even thinking about the context in which we live right now in the U.S. with all the things going on and, you know, many of the rights that women have when it comes to making decisions about their bodies being taken away. And I'm thinking about all of this within the context of what you're doing and coming from that position of empowerment. So that's all I want to say about that. Mm -hmm. right, thanks. So, Michelle, thank you for telling us about the Mothers of Gynecology statue and what, you know, what inspired you and why you were passionate about making sure the story was told. But I'm really not too sure that everyone is familiar with the story. So could you just give us a brief overview of the story and let's say their names? You know, I again, I have to say I'm biased. I, I snapped up a few T-shirts while I was there and, you know, I just happened to be teaching a class where we were talking about reproductive rights. But... I'm not sure how many people are aware how the standard practices that occur in gynecology were really evolved from these three women that we know the names of. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about who they are? Let's say their name, honor them in that way. Thank you, Michelle. Absolutely. And, and if you don't mind, I can yes, indeed. just share with mm -hmm. you how I found them or how they found me. I was 18 years old at the Art Institute of Atlanta and studying uh, figurative drawing and drawings. And one of my professors had this 
postcard of uh, that was created by Robert Tom. It was a, a picture of Anarcha Lucy, or what was perceived to be Anarcha Lucy and Betsy, uh, Anarcha on a table with three white doctors surrounding them. Very popular painting. It was used for you know pharmacies and medical um, spaces uh, during that time. And Robert Tom was commissioned by Park Davis, which is now Pfizer, to create 45 Great Moments in Medicine. And so when it came down to the narrative of J. Marion Sims, quote, the father of modern gynecology, he created this infamous photo, this infamous painting of these three doctors and these three girls, right? And so basically when I saw that at the age of 18 on my professor's desk, I asked him, I was like, you know, my parents are very black power, you know, very informative black people and very astute, right? And they taught us the African diaspora, um, but they didn't teach me about black girls and black women and what their duty was and how they were sexually trafficked and used to replenish stock, right? And so when I asked him about the painting, he basically dismissed me and said, why don't you just go somewhere and figure it out? And I said, okay, you mean old nasty white man, I'll go somewhere and I'll figure it out. And I left the college over spring break and I came back, but I went to this place called the Shrine of the Black Madonna in Atlanta, Georgia. And I described to the gentleman that was there what I saw. And he instantly took me to the picture and a book. And he said, is this what you saw? And I said, yes. And he says that, and he began to tell me about these three girls, but there were more than that. We're now finding that there were like 11, um, but James Marion Sims had written a memoir called Story of My Life. And as a doctor, he was detailing what he was doing uh, to these enslaved girls and how plantation owners or, you know, the, they would bring their chattel to him uh, to fix what is called a vesquial vaginal fistula, which is a hole that would render these girls incontinent, uh, fecal matter, urine. And so in essence, they weren't, quote, fit for duty because they had this hole during childbirth that rendered them really in a terrible state, very painful um, physical state. And so he began to, you know, broadcast that he can correct, correct, uh, correct these, these fistulas. And he became very popular, but Anarcha, uh, which is the one that he speaks about the most, she sustained the most surgeries, 30 surgeries without anesthesia, because in our, you know, even today in our medical books and journals, it says that black people and black women have a higher tolerance for pain. And so she, literally, literally sustained 30 surgeries um, or experimentations without anesthetics, right? And so then with her, uh, there's Lucy who had her 12th surgery and, and Betsy. So basically these girls were brought to him to cure this fistula. And so um, I just can remember thinking about the horror uh, that those girls have sustained you know, the experimentation alone was very gruesome. And so I thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be nice to create my whole portfolio to honor them? So there was an African-American uh, festival. It was a Black Arts Festival. Uh, and so for my, my portfolio, I decided to honor these girls in my portfolio. So I returned to college um, after the spring break, and I told my professor, I found out what, who those girls were and what was happening. And he told, he looked one look, took one look at my portfolio and said, your portfolio is too black and you need to stay here and diversify. I was supposed to graduate. And I said, I would never allow you to dismiss my art. And as a matter of fact, over my shoulder right here, 
is the t-shirt that I created when I was 18 years old to honor an Arthur Lucy and Betsy. So I decided to drop out of school. I dropped out of college and just continued on my way until 2020. And I, uh, you know, during COVID, bored to death, trying to figure out how am I going to make it um, through this trying time that we were all going through. And I decided to revisit my drive and love and thoughts and pictures and sketches uh, to honor Anarcha Lucy and Betsy. And so that's the journey. It's the, it, I was triggered in 2020 because of COVID. And um, I thought if any time that I would be able to do something like this, it would be during this time when we're all resting, right? And so that's how it came about. I was literally been guided by these, these girls since I was 18. That's amazing. Thank you so much for giving us the long walk, right? Because I think one thing is good for for us to hear, parents yeah. to hear, as well as the young people who may be tuning in, our walks are always not straight. You know, we may hear them, you got to walk a straight line. Mm-mm. We don't always do that. You know, it is very true. And what mm-hmm. I hear from you is it is often true that we may have to work twice as hard to achieve our goals because we encounter people who don't share our vision, don't share our history, don't share our concept. So we have to find what centers us and allows us mm-hmm. to move forward. And it sounds like you were able to do that. And in doing so, to come back to to where you were mm-hmm. at that moment as a young adult, you know, grappling with the uncovering and discovering of the history of, of Black women, of ancestors, but also honing your artistic craft. So the idea that, you know, we, we get to be adults, but it may not have been a straight path for us, particularly if you are you know, an African descent. So thanks for sharing that. And, and so related to that, mm-hmm. I definitely want to ask you, you know, how do you... You know, what advice do you have for parents and educators who want to use your work or art history to teach young people about social justice and activism? Like, what, what would you tell them? Because you're doing the work directly. You have the more up campus. You're working with young people. They're going back and working with mm-hmm. other young people. But what about those of us or those out who are listening who, you know, they just maybe look at the picture and maybe touched by it, but haven't quite figured out how to bring the two together? What advice do you have to those educators or parents or guardians who are, who are working with young people and want to bridge the gap between art, history, and maybe social justice. Mm-hmm. You got to tap into the culture. So what my team and I, what we've done is we've created a curriculum. I've created a, cre- a curriculum around these girls and the Adinkra symbols. It's also a way to teach our um, our African heritage, you know? So there's the Adinkra, the Adinkra symbols um, the GMA, the GMA, Goddess Supreme, or the Supremacy of God, of Anarcha. Her head is tilted back. She's kind of like in a meditative state. And then there's another one, uh, Strength for Betsy, and then the Tongue and Teeth for Lucy, because they became friends. They formed a friendship. So we, you're, we're using the the you know the I have my earrings, which is the beauty. It's called beauty in the Ghanaian um, symbolism. And so basically, I just, to be creative uh, the way that I am, I, I just use a lot of symbols in my art, but also how do we tie it to where we are today with maternal health, whether it's the culture that these young people are growing up in, especially girls, 
um, how rude we can be, you know, in, in some of these cultures, you know, every time I go on Instagram, somebody's throwing up a middle finger. Why is that? Why are we so disrespectful to one another? So I would implore people that if you are an educator, you have to tap into the culture. You have to tap into where we are today with these young folks because a lot of them are very disrespectful. Can I say that? You can say can that, say that and not be judged. Language? Absolutely. Because and what I want to I want to dig into that a little bit. We don't, you yes. know, we would, you know, we could, we could make this a whole curriculum, if you will. But I do want to dig into that specifically related to this Absolutely. question because I think about, you know, as an educator myself, I teach, and I may have mentioned this to to you or others on our show. I teach a, a class, an undergraduate class on. Black media stereotypes and adolescent identity development, Black adolescent identity development. And one of the things that we do is we take a historical lens. So we look at media before there was TV. We look at print media. We look at what was the, the early Chitlin circuit. Mm -hmm. And we talk about how those, those images are mm -hmm. replicated or modified in current society. And many of my students, some of them are non-traditional students. So they may be older. They may be married. Some are traditional, you know, straight from high school. But a common thread, if you will, Michelle, is, you know, I had no idea about this historical connection because we live in this place where Instagram makes information instantly okay. available. The World Wide Web, WWW makes things instantly available. So, you know, I do want to ask you a little bit if mm -hmm. someone says, I don't even know where to go to get the history of, you know, Marion Sims, or I don't even know who Anarcha and Betsy are. Where, you know, what would you suggest? What resources in the community would you suggest that they tap into or places on the web to, to help them say, I've seen this, this piece of art, or I've seen this statue in my community, and I want to learn more so that I can have a deeper conversation with the young people. Because one thing that I can say, having worked with teenagers for a while, you know, if you push them through a, you know, a, a, a relatively friendly debate, you can sometimes slip in some of the knowledge that would make them, you know, when they walk away from you, think about what you said or go look it up. Now, they may defend their point of view, you know, to the end while they're there with you, but they will go and sort of take a look at those additional jewels. So what would you tell those teachers or, or those parents who are saying, I, I don't even know where to go to get the additional history? What might you recommend so that that discourse that young people are having, you know, maybe that rudeness and that, you know, misogynoir that's happening with Black girls can be a fuller discussion beyond, oh, that's just what we do right now. Uh -huh. Well, it's interesting that you should say that because on one of the the mothers, I have Lizzo's name on it. And my young girls, when they come and they're like, why do you have Lizzo's name on here? Because one of the, the statues has a big buttocks, right? So right now, everybody's with the BBLs. Everybody's running around trying to uh, look a certain part. Well, where does that come from? Where does the objectification of Black girls and Black bodies, where does that come in the commodification of it? And so I would just say, you know, to con just dig deeper and look at where we have come from. I'm your mother, I'm your father, I'm that nigga, right? Where did all of this come from? Uh, it came from the music. It came from the propaganda um, in terms of changing the image of Black folks in this country, where we went from the civil rights movement very, being very, you have to dress a certain way so that you wouldn't be stereotyped, Right if you were marching or going to the lunch counters it's to now where we are is you just show up with the bonnet on your head and the, and the, you know, just anyway with the, with your sagging jeans. And, but it, it's, so I typically go back to 
um, the trafficking and what who these people were before they even got here. Kings, you know, engineers, doctors, astrology, astrologists. And, and so that's how I tie it in. I tie it in by looking at who they were in terms of our ancestors uh, and, and, and even the indigenous, the chiefs, right, um, from the indigenous tribes. So that's how I shape uh, conversations with young people. And then I try to show them how just how powerful Black people and Black children and Black music and Black art is because it has shaped a culture throughout um, not just our country, but throughout the world. Everybody wants to be Black, you know? And so that's how I try to teach um, the history along with Anarcha Lucy and Betsy, you know, Black girls. We have now Big Sexy Red. I don't know if you all know some of these characters, but Krishan Rock and, and all of these characters that are shaping another generation of young people, but yet they don't know who they are. So we try, you know, our, our young babies, they don't know. Yes, They're being, somebody absolutely. is writing a right. script and they right. are actually playing it out. And so basically I try to show them that either you're going to continue to play into this script into this role that the man, mm -hmm. I take it back to the seventies. We talk about the man and how the man created these stereotypes um, through the music, just as I was singing with Shaft, you know, and, and um, uh, what is this? Sly in the family stone and some of the, the songs uh, that they started indoctrinating people with um, in terms of, you know, drugs and, and guns. And so not to ramble, but that's basically how I, I approach the young folks um, in terms of with this history, taken from where they are, who they were and who they are and the fight from World War One to, you know, how these people were able to fly planes. But yet mm -hmm. the stereotype was that they were dumb, that they couldn't fly, they didn't have the intellect. Mm -hmm. You know, we go back to eugenics, you know, and. And so, uh, so that's that would yeah, be my take. Yeah, that's what I yes, would say. Indeed. And so I hear a couple things that you've said, and then I'm I know you you know, Wanda has a few things that she wants to ask you, but I, I hear a few things in what you're saying in working with young people, particularly teenagers, right? Preteens, teenagers, young adults who are transitioning out of high school, perhaps to college or working, is being in tune with the culture that they are consuming, right? Because being in tune with the culture that they're consuming, however artistic it is or it isn't, allows us as adults in their lives to engage in a conversation and connect the dots that they are unaware of, right? So, you know, I'm you know, big, sexy, red. Yep. I know that one, you know, Lizzo. Yep. I know that one. Right. So we're, we're having these conversations in a way that, you know, they can also appreciate that we are in tune with what they're doing, but we want them to take a longer look. So it sounds like, you know, there are times when we might say, I don't want to listen to that. Turn that television show off or stop streaming that, but just being aware of what they're paying attention to, what they're consuming, what they're being exposed to, how they're being scripted, right? So even though they may not be playing that part immediately, their lives are being scripted. You know, one of the you know, the books that I love is Jackson's book. I think it came out in 2006 and he talks about, you know, scripting the black masculine body, but he also in that book talks about scripting the black female body, right? And the evolution of these images. And so we have these newer terms. So instead of maybe a sapphire, we're calling a black woman ratchet, but there's still this defining characteristics about them. So being able to make that connection and then to bring that into the conversation or expose young people through art that might say, okay, what does this look like? You yes. know, and and, how, and is there a similarity between this image and then the image that you are consuming today or what you believe, believe you're aspiring to be? So sounds like, you know, one, doing our own homework, 
being aware of learning our own history too. Also being in touch with what the contemporary narrative is that these young people are having so that we can stretch them. It's super important. As much as we might cringe at the images or cringe at the the words that we're hearing, we at least got to, we at least have to listen to a little bit of it in order to engage them beyond what they're seeing in this immediate moment. And, you know, I really do love that Jackson text and it's, you know, in academic white may say it's older, but it's it's old, you know, it's outdated, but it's a classic in terms of saying, here's the framework that's behind the scenes. And he talks about the difference between scripting a body and, you know, reading, you know, yeah. reading the body. So absolutely, as you said, yes, these new characters or characters and, and what they represent um, and how they're presented to our youth today. Absolutely. Yes. So thank you for that. Thank you. So we, we've got to listen, good people. We've got to listen. We've got to watch. We might cringe a little bit, but we've got to listen and watch in order to connect with these young people. Yeah. Otherwise, they will they will likely going to shut down. They're not going to hear a thing you've said if you've not listened to what they're listening to, at least to be able to engage in you know meaningful conversation with them. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I'm doing with, especially around the the, the mothers, the girls, because they were 17. They were just their age. So for Sexy Red to run around talking about my coochie hole is pink and my booty hole is brown, that is just, we are at the end of the imagery of Black women, if you understand what I'm saying. It's like the, in, in terms of who we are and, and what we are supposed to be. And I used to tell my my students all the time when I first started, we are not in words. We're not B words. We're not H words. And I wouldn't say it on your podcast, but I would tell them that. And that every time we would have a, a, um, a gathering, I would remind them that is not who we are. And so when you're living in the culture where Jay-Z says that it's a, it's a rite for passage, you know, and everyone is now it's just common. You know, it, we came from queen. What's up, queen? Or, you know, what's up, brother, sister? You know, and that's how I address my students. Sister, where are you going today? Queen, what's going on? You know, and I try to take them back to that. And it's even hard now to break down those walls. So there's a lesson even in that. What we call ourselves and what we, what did she say? Who's that, my dear? It's what we answer to. It's not what they call Absolutely. And I have to chuckle because I was unintentionally, I had been looking at one student and, 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 and speaking to another. And she was just sitting there as if she was deaf. And then I said, you know, I'm so sorry. That's not your name. She said, I was wondering who you were talking to. So I said, that's right. That is right, sis. And I said to her, that you are absolutely right, sis. I am sorry. I had to kind of break out of my professor roles. I said, sis, you are absolutely right. Let me step back and call you by your name. I said, I, I sincerely apologize. I was looking at her, but talking to you. But that's right. It's what we answer to. And part of that is, you know, connecting with the history and even getting young people as you did and taking your first group to, to see you know attorney stevenson like here's a world beyond this little microcosm that you've been exposed to to get them excited and say i am more than this script that's being presented or written for me to step into absolutely so appreciate and sometimes as you know you know hearing you sometimes we just have to be real when we talk with young people right i miss working with young people directly but that is one of the ways that in addition to being aware of what they are grappling with mm-hmm. or listening to or in tune to is just being very real with them in a way that they know that you hear them, right? Even if you're, you know, attempting to influence and are influencing, you know, that I hear you and I, I, I want to let you know, I yeah. understand where you are, but I want to move you from where you are when it's these sort of 
these these influences that may not be pulling out the most positive aspects of our young people. So thank you again, Michelle, for that work, the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That is just awesome. I've just been here soaking it all in. And, you know, if you have like, when you're picking up like sound bites and things like that, um, you you dropped so many gems and I wrote one of them down. It's not what you're called, it's what you answer to because it, it's totally um true. And also, you know, being able to connect young people to the history, for them to know the history behind some of these things, I think it's going to be total um, uh, mindset um, change or even a shift in some of the things that they do. So I, I was just thinking about I mean, for those who know me, I'm passionate about, you know, addressing black maternal health because we know there's so many disparities out there when it comes to uh, um, black maternal health. And in particular, with black women, you know, we are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. So thinking about some of the things going on and the, um, the statistics when it comes to black women's health, the question I want to ask really is about um, how do you really balance your artistic expression? So balance and use your artistic expression with your role as an activist and leader in, in your community. So when you're advocating for different issues that um, have to do with anything really, but you know, black women, how do you really balance that out? Mm, so the sculptures, the mothers, they are speaking, they're amplifying the voices of those that have been sterilized yesterday and today, the Rail Sisters. We talked candidly, candidly about them and how they were sterilized. They went in for contraceptive care here in Montgomery, Alabama, and they were released without their wombs. They were their reproductive organs. Um, when you look at you know just what's happening uh, today, um, so with the Dove Act, are you all familiar with the Dove Act? Where in Congress right now, before them, is a bill that would allow you to wear your locks and your curly hair because we're cutting folks' hair off and they're wrestling, and or we're telling black women that it's not professional to show up with their hair in coils and in locks. And so with the mothers, what I decided, what I did was the first thing I gave them was I took off their rags and I gave them uh, cornrows bantu knots and braids, right? And so reshaping that narrative and giving back that dignity, uh, that's my activism. And then, you know, to ask the question, why is it that we're in 2023 and we're still having to grapple with, you know, how we show up in professional settings or having someone to tell us. So my activism um, is right there on, on 17 Mildred Street with those women because we're talking about Don Wooten, who lifted the veil on the um, sterilization of immigrants at, on the border from 2020 and 21 and the sterilization that is still happening, um, you know, in, with some of these pharmaceutical companies that we don't want to talk about. But so basically I just use my art uh, and really right now just focusing in on the mothers. We're talking about the maternal health um, crisis that we're in. We are in deserts, maternity care deserts um, in Alabama alone. We have 43 counties that don't have maternity care, no OBGYNs, no doulas and midwives or birthing centers, the hospitals are closing. And so I'm trying to use, and let me tell you this, it's affecting black girls. 
It's affecting girls in these rural counties who are afraid to go to doctors, who are afraid to talk to um, people because they're afraid of being disrespected and or dying. Um, and so basically, I'm just trying to raise the awareness. And I do that with anything uh, that that uh, that suits me in terms of uh, we just had what the Montgomery brawl, which I call it the Montgomery mob. Um, you know, that happened here a few months ago where a black man was mobbed by white men and now he's being charged, you know, for defending himself. Uh, so, you know, and again, art has been used as propaganda uh, to stereotype folks and to marginalize people, you know, for hundreds of years. And so if I can use my art in this way uh, to give rise to, you know, seeking out solutions on how we can stay alive when we're giving birth, uh, that's that's my charge to keep. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And, and I love, you know, just even how you're using your art in different spaces to really um, to really advocate for issues that you're passionate about, but also that uplift and empower um, black women. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. And I hear you saying, you know, how you're teaching and instigating and prodding and having discussions with the young people, and that helps them mature them and grow them and also connect them to the historical legacy here. Um, I must also ask you, you know, I can't help but ask you, you know, we asked about you and yourself, but how do you, you know, sometimes this can be, this can be heavy for adults, right? And it definitely can be heavy for people who don't have an artistic outlet. Mm -hmm. But how do you believe your work promotes resilience and joy in Black children, right? So you're teaching them, you're helping them to be clearer, um, to be critical thinkers and consumers of media, in particular, artistic media, art runs the gamut, right? Um, visual mm -hmm. and performance media. How do you believe your work promotes joy and resilience in Black children? Mm. When I show them just how creative our ancestors were. So when people say go back to Africa, I said, okay, well, can, can we take back that ironing board that that black woman created? Can we also take care of the, the can we take the doorknob? Can we take the air conditioner? Can we take the stoplight? That's creativity, right? And I get excited when I look at all of these things around us that black people created, invented. And so my students and, and myself, I am, stoked at the amount of poetry, um, you know, gadgets that we use on an everyday basis that was created by Black folk. Uh, that gives me my resiliency, and it, but it also strengthens me and my students when I show them the greatness that we came from or that we come from, um, and, and that they too possess that same artistic or creative strive, whether it's writing a verse, whether it's uh, to, to change a person's mind about who they are, Right. Um, that's that's the joy in it to know that we are gifted and that we have created so much in this country that, you know, we were reduced down to the commerce. But look just how much black lives matter. You couldn't have cotton without those black hands. You couldn't have rice without those black hands because they didn't know how to pick it. They didn't know. how. You know what I'm saying? So I kind of flipped the script um, and, and showed them their greatness. And that's what I was trying to do when I took them to the United States Supreme Court to show them something other than a basketball or a football, but to see that you could take your rap and literally liberate um, hundreds of people, which this particular attorney has done. So, you know, it, it gives me great joy to be able to expose them to something that they, they have not been taught. 
you know, and to know that a black woman created an apparatus that would hold the sanitary napkin in place. To know that a black woman named, uh, what was her name? Uh, Big Mama Thornton was the one, the mastermind behind, behind the ain't nothing but a hound dog, right? To know that Elvis is not who he is without black face, without black people. So, I mean, it, that's what gives me joy is to be able to share with young people the brilliance of black people, mm-hmm. you know, and what we've created. So, And I think that's wonderful because it also instills in them um, pride and joy and confidence, yes. you know, knowing that whatever you're reading, you know, from wherever you're getting that information from, that's not the truth, right? Like black people are creative. Our ancestors were creative. They were not primitive. They were creative folks. And that's part of the joy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Medicines. And, and here in Alabama, our state's capital was built by over 200 enslaved people. The staircase and alone people come from all over the country to learn and to, and to look at these interlocking the interlocking technique mm. uh, that Horace King, a black man who was enslaved, that created. You know what I'm saying? It's like <laughs> we're we're such a brilliant people, and if we weren't such a danger in that, then it wouldn't take them 400 years to tell us that we're less than, right? Mm-hmm. To tell them that we're lazy, even though the commerce was built by black folks. Our New York Stock Exchange right. was yes. on the back. Yes. So that's power. Yep. When you mm-hmm. look at, we are a powerful people. What is, what is it? Uh, we're, our, our dollar, the black dollar, if it could turn around in our community um, at least two or three times before it goes out, but that they know that. That's why we have urban renewal. That's why we have bridges that went through uh, spaces where, you know, black people lived and thrived and had universities. We created universities for ourselves, yep. right? So when I start talking to young people about that, Tuskegee University and Howard and, you know, and how these places came to be, um, they get energized. It's energizing to know that you're just so brilliant to the point where someone wants to write a script for you to act out to make you feel as though you're less than. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah. I get excited when I yes, think about yes, it. Yes, no, it's always exciting, life. especially when you can get young people excited and, and re-energized. And I think about that because in my class, yeah. one of my students, who, who's actually an athletic scholar, he came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, Dr. Bass, do you have any hope? You know, he says, sometimes I just see all this media and I see what's going on in our communities. And, you know, it's hard not to give up. And we hear that quite a bit about the younger generations, particularly black young people. And this is an, an African-American male. And I said, I do. I said, it, it is indeed hard. And we're we're having difficult conversations in this class because at this point, we're looking at the historical roots of these images at that point in the class. I said, but, you know, there's hope and there's these other things that are going on. And we talk about alternative images and ways that we can contribute to the narrative and, you know, his taking up space in a predominantly white institution and, you know, just to kind of have that conversation with him, I think was just good for him, you know, to be able to say, let me just talk to an adult and say, mm-hmm. do you have hope? Because I, I'm struggling and just also encouraging him to go to other places and see other things that are not always heavy, you know, with the negative narrative about who he is and yeah. who people who look yeah. like him are. So it absolutely, indeed, is it, it is inspiring. Yeah. So I do have to ask you one or two more questions for you. So to follow up on what you and Yawande were talking about, 
Tell us about some of the creative art that has come out of the young people. It sounds like you've got their, you know, their, their engines moving, their thinking, they're really being, you know, becoming not only consumers, but critical discussion and discourse with you. But what are some of the creative pieces that have come out? Because as you know, we consistently say you have this art and you're using it in social justice ways, you're connecting the history. So are there any of your young people who have emerged as artists or are working on becoming artists as a result of their time? Is that a joy space for them? Yeah, I have photographers, I have lead photographers, I have photographers who have become award winners uh, that grew up in, in our organization that worked for the governor. We now have young people who went on to the military, right, who's now in the higher ranks of the Air Force at such a young age. Uh, we have young people that started their own businesses. And so they are themselves. I, my last cohort was about four years ago, uh, the last student that I promised to take care of. And um, she's 21 now and she's working with me. She actually gives the tours when I'm not there. Right. So um, they're all very successful. They're all very, very successful businessmen, women and creatives. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And so the young people that I'm working, looking to work with now are students, you know, during COVID, when COVID happened, I lost contact with my uh, new cohort of students and, and has decided I just really want to create a space for them to be able to teach them how to work and, and to, you know, be independent mm -hmm. and not to look for mm -hmm. grants. We don't look for grants. We, we create our own wealth. Right. And so that's where um, uh, these kids are now. So I, I, it's, it's a joy to go into work every day and to see them working alongside me or to call them and say, hey, I need a picture for the New York Times. So a lot of my students have, you know, my photographer and my, my content writers um, just still very gifted and still doing what they deem is their uh, charge to keep, which is to be creative, to be strong, but resilient awesome. and produce. Awesome. And they're producing. I'm glad to hear that, mm -hmm. you know, because we, we want to hear that they are engaging with the history, but that, that you know, that, that they are finding ways that they, they, they engage and delve into their own joy. And if it's a creative outlet, all the more, right. So that we can have these oh, alternative yeah. images as many or as more than the, the types of images that we're often countering. So thank you for that. Um, when you think about all that you're doing and these young people that you can call on and who continue to work with you, are there any upcoming projects or initiatives that you're excited about and tell us how they might align with the mission of the More Up campus? Campus, sure. So one of the things that I wanted to do, I didn't want to create just a beautiful piece of art. It's beautiful. I hope you all can come and see it one day. It's absolutely gorgeous. But I also wanted it to not only teach people, but to to bring folks to Montgomery so that they can learn more about this history and black women and black girls. Right. And so we started a conference. I called my team after September 21, when the mothers went up, I'm like, Oh, you know, this would be a great idea to, it's a great idea to, to teach this history with a conference. So next year will be our third conference coming up February 27th through March 1st. And none other than Dr. Sharon Malone, OBGYN, world renowned, married to Eric Holder, um, magnificent woman, will be our keynote speaker from Mobile, Alabama. And so we're going to have a full day in Montgomery with other doctors, Dr. Uh, Pierre Johnson, an amazing black brother from Chicago, who he deems himself as the fibroid slayer. 
cute as he can be. Just as black street hood. But he is a gynecologist and he's coming. And I have students now who are um, at Emory University who are going to facilitate with students, other students, um, you know, about what it's going to take for us to, to be better students and practitioners. And so this conference will be coming up on next year. We're actually going to take people down to Mobile, Alabama. We're going to do a day trip to Mobile because that is where the midwifery history is, um, along with Lee Logan, the last midwife that practice midwifery that was forced out of her field because of white men wanting to dominate um, health care and, and maternal care. So we're going down there for a day and then we're going to come back and, and talk with um, uh, hopefully Ben Crump will be here. But one of the women, I don't know if you all have heard about the Henrietta Lacks, the new, so her name is Delixo Alford. She is the behind the scenes powerhouse attorney that worked on getting the justice for Henrietta Lacks. She's also a keynote speaker. So it's going to be three days of sure um, education. We're talking about maternal health. And another thing that we did was I bought the building where the girls were enslaved and tortured, uh, the site. And so the site will be another thing that we're working on, a $5.5 million project to have it restored or to, to renovate it so that we can invite first-year medical students to Montgomery to learn the history, to encourage um, our Black children and, and uh, Black family to go on to become doctors, lawyers, engineers. Uh, I know in Nigeria, you cannot walk up out of there being no football player. You got to be an engineer, a doctor, or what else is it? A lawyer, right? <laughs> Listen, if we could get that done over here, we'd be something, we'd be something to handle. Um, and so basically we want to encourage, a couple of my students have gone on to be midwives. We sent them to school uh, to be midwives. We have uh, doula training. And so basically we're, we're going to use the space and this time and the platform to encourage more medical practitioners. We need it. We have to take care of ourselves at this point because the government sure ain't doing it and the insurance is too high. And so we have to go back to the granny wives. Mm -hmm. We got to go back to the midwives and the dealers and, and take care Definitely. of our own. So that I'm, we can I'm just so excited to hear about your mm -hmm. conference. And um, I'm sure that this last year was amazing. Um, and it's just, you know, one of the things when young people meet these people that we can get excited about and we're familiar with. Sometimes they know of them, they're aware of them. Other times it's not till after they're like, wow, I was in the room with this person who was so fantastic. So thank you for just doing the lifting to connect those young people with, you know, giants in our community. Um, and, and we never know where that's going to go, but I think that's just so incredibly important. And, you know, my class and my, my statistics class where everyone is, you know, shaking in their boots, one of the things that I have them do is to look at the Tuskegee experiment and the Henrietta Lacks case as examples of, you know, ethical considerations. And we talk about how Tuskegee was, you know, supported by the government, but what does it mean to make ethical decisions as a researcher? And particularly for the, for the, um, the, the students who are of color, you know, what does it mean to do research in your community and to be true to your community? Like, what are the conflicts here? So, you know, when, to, to be able to give them that update about the Henrietta Lex case and to be able to talk about how this was generationally, they kept going back to her family. So what does it mean 
to to be aware yes. of this and how do you bring a different element or a different experience should you become a researcher or should you become a social worker should you become a doctor how do you bring a different experience to those people in your community that you work with so part of that as we started the conversation Michelle is helping them to know the longer history right helping them to understand the longer history so yes. that when they're confronted with that narrative they can at least pause and say I feel some dissonance you know, as one of my mentors, that's what's one of her favorite words. I feel some dissonance with this. Let me let me look a little yeah. further or let me listen a little closer before I just engage and accept what is presented to yeah. me. So um, I'm ex- I was totally excited and thrilled to hear that it was they were going beyond murals, you know, for and, and images of Henrietta's cells to donate or give to her her children and great grandchildren. Yeah. That's not enough. So. Yeah. Yes. Um, I was just so excited and I'm looking forward to hearing more about your conference. And I, and I had to say, I don't see you putting up your, uh, you know, the sculptures that you did. So I found one of my pictures. I dug into my phone and said, this is the sculptures of the three girls, right. Um, that Michelle put together and she's being so modest in her work when I spoke with her because they're amazing. I think you had only been learning this particular type of artistic technique for maybe a year. Is that correct, Michelle? When you did a month? Uh, a month. I, I out in March of 21, I stayed with the Bernie Man artists. Bernie Man, they're the ones who taught me. Um, stayed with them for about a month and a half, and I came home and I completed this project in Montgomery. When I, when I left San Francisco, I had a half a head of Anarcha, and I had a half a pair of legs and I had skeletons and 20 different boxes. And I cried because I'm like, how am I going to complete this on my own? How am I going to get this? And I had a team of um, three that came in to help me put the mesh, the skin on, on, on the mothers and which gave me a palette. And I was able to complete the project by September of So again, I, you know, because it's such a dynamic and phenomenal set of sculptures, not just one, I extended it from one, one month to one year, because I remember I was, I, that was one of the questions I asked you. I said, these are amazing. How long did it take you? And how long have you been using this medium? Because you also have paintings there. And so just being driven by the passion, the knowledge, mm-hmm. reconnecting with what you had set out to do as an art student, um, just amazing work. I encourage our listeners to to go by the more campus, to donate, to talk to the young people, just to to use it as a space to learn more of our history, um, to to know the names of these young. They were girls, really, right? These these teenagers. I'm saying women, but they were girls. They were children, right? Um, and then to learn, you know, about the midwives yeah. who kept space for Black women to give birth and, and to, to be a, in a healthier space, given the morbidity that Yawande shared with us. So excited about how you contribute to our young people um, in place and you and you take them with you along along your walk and your growth and development and how you are reclaiming the history of the community, the Black community there in Alabama. We thank you um, just for continuing to do the work and for just your your, your talent as an artist. We, we're so appreciative that you spent some time with us this evening just to, to really talk about what it means to work with teenagers in today's time and to move them from all that they're hearing and seeing that's not too good about Black people to things that are good and great and fabulous about Black people and, and particularly about these experiences that should help them want to do more and do better. So thank you. Thank you.
Thank you so much for having me. You are quite welcome. And thank you again for jumping in as part of our Parent Joy Circle to help us have this expanded conversation with Michelle. We appreciate your, your contributions to this conversation as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We certainly appreciate your continued support. We're grateful to be a part of the Alive Podcast Network, the home of Black Voices, where community, culture, and creatives live. If you'd like to support our show and enjoy an ad-free experience, please download and subscribe to the Alive Podcast app on the Apple Store or Google Play. For helpful parenting resources and tools, visit whatisblack.co and sign up for our monthly newsletter. Don't forget to follow us on social media by checking out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts at whatisblack.co.